0: There's a thousands thousand studies on how to start antidepressants, and there is uh, less than half a dozen on how to stop them, and it has been absent from medical education, essentially. The so withdrawal effects can, can range from being mild and not a big deal to being severe and life-threatening.
1: Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. I wanted to share with you a new way to support the show. Let's just say it's as easy as buying a cup of coffee. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please consider buying me a cup of coffee. Check out the site, buymeacoffee.com slash There, you'll have the option of buying me a one-time cup or cups of coffee or to become a member in order to purchase me some coffee monthly. Your support will help me to not only get caffeinated up, but also to offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. Again, you can find the site at buymeacupofcoffee.com/allevin. A l l e v i n. It's easy to do and would really help me out greatly. Finally, another way to help me out would be to take just a minute to rate and review the show. This really helps others to be able to discover the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now, to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep-dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health, topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm very excited. Today on the line we have Dr. Mark Horowitz... Dr. Horowitz has a PhD in the Neurobiology of Depression and the Pharmacology of Antidepressants at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience at King's College London. He is currently a research fellow in the National Health Service in England, that is their NHS. And uh, finally, he is a co-founder of Outro Health, which uh, we will talk about soon at Involves helping people wean off of their antidepressants. Doctor Horowitz, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much for having me on. Al, nice to be here.
1: Wow, um, I ha- I'm so thrilled to have you on here um, for many reasons. Um, you you have done so much research around depression itself, around antidepressants, and as I am more than happy to share with the audience, I'm in the process of weaning off of. My own antidepressant after being on it for ten years, and we can get into that a little later too. But I would, I would love to just start. Uh, I mean, you have your own story of depression, and it sounds like that kind of hit you uh, once you were in med school.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's what led me into the work that I've gone into. And it sounds like we we have uh, something in common because I'm weaning off an antidepressant as we speak. So my story, something like this: I, I'm from Australia tell from my accent. I grew up in a neurotic Jewish family. If you've ever seen Woody Allen's films, you'll have some idea of the kind of family I grew up in. Uh, And I, you know, I, I think that being from a academic kind of introspective family in a very, in Australia, which is a kind of sports, you know, outdoorsy surfing kind of place, a little bit put me out of place at high school and i think that's really i felt a bit alienated from my classmates i think that's when things began Okay, Uh, and it got it got i i kind of went into med school like a lot of people with kind of cultural expectations around me kind of pressures and i it all sort of came to a head in my early 20s and i was in a i was in a deep funk then i'd sort of I exhausted self-help books, and I ended up going, uh, like one in four to one in five people in Western countries, to my GP, to ask for an antidepressant. Okay. Uh, which I which I'd seen people uh, in my family and friends use. I'd heard lectures about them. I'd heard about them in the news. I thought that sounded like a neat solution. Yeah. Uh,
1: Were you concerned being in med school and going on an antidepressant at all? I feel like a lot of doctors and professionals are really hesitant to jump into antidepressants just because of their job.
0: um, That didn't really cross my head. In fact, my experience of uh, doctors actually and psychiatrists is that a lot of them are taking medication. And are they Um, open about it? Uh, to differing to differing degrees, I think I saw some statistic, um, uh, maybe in America or Canada, that that more doctors are on antidepressants than the average population. Okay. I think, and, and I think probably being a doctor encouraged me to go on it because it was so normalised. Right, you know, we had lectures about it. I was seeing people at uh, work on it. it. It also happens that my mother is a pharmacist, and medication was highly normalised. In our family because of that. Right. So I think all those things made it, made it, I didn't really have major reservations about taking it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I did try to kind of go through self-help books. That was my kind of method of, 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 of trying to deal with things.
1: What kind of self-help just to carry out of curiosity?
0: I, well, I guess, uh, you know, I was 20, 20, and 21. Then I was a little bit embarrassed, a bit ashamed about feeling so bad so i i basically went to the library at the medical school i was at and i basically stole self-help books i because I didn't want to check them out. That's oh, that's that's how that's how sort of self conscious I was. Right, right.
1: Well, there's uh, a lot of shame, right, that yeah, comes with absolutely,
0: depression. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, it was. I, I remember. I think I. I think I. The book that I read a lot of was you can't afford the luxury of a negative thought. That was one. Okay. And a couple yeah. of and a couple of CBT books.
1: Yep. Cognitive behavioral therapy to kind exactly. of change Cognitive that behavioral therapy to yeah. change that yeah. way of thinking.
0: Really, right? Ab- absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
1: And yeah. and nothing was working, and and you had. I hear you saying, you know, you had a family member in pharmaceuticals, and and you were learning about them. It was. You probably figured it would was the panacea. Let me just jump on an antidepressant, and I'll be great.
0: Kind of. I mean, I did. Th- I did find the self help things a bit helpful. There was insights. Look, I was a very bookish fellow. I was reading Kafka, and I was reading Nietzsche, and I thought that you know, that oh, I had similarities to them and I could appreciate their struggles and their philosophical solutions could be mine. I sort of, but then at some point I thought, no, uh, I sort of remember struggling with this, you know, is it, is is this a philosophical existential dilemma that I should solve, you know, by writing or doing philosophy, which was sort of the direction I was heading in? Or, you know, should I take a medication? And I, I sort of like to go back and read my diaries, but I think I struggle with yes, you know, am I, is this kind of giving in? Is this a shortcut? Is this, uh, is this the right thing or is it irresponsible not to take medication? I remember going round and round in my head. Yeah.
1: Right. Or is it a weakness, right? That's what a lot yeah. of people feel like. And it's, it's really interesting to me that you were so embarrassed about checking out books that you would sneak them out yet yeah. the medications wasn't an embarrassment at all in the end.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's right. I, I I've still got a, I've still got a book at my parents' house that's got Port Macquarie Medical Hospital stamped on the inside. So <laughs> I hope I hope the librarian is not listening to this because oh I'll be in goodness. trouble. Um, <laughs> but y- yes, your point was I guess it's a good point about medication. Look, I remember going to the GP, who was a, uh, a kindly old woman down the road from us, uh, and I remember being embarrassed to go to, to say this to her as well. I remember psyching myself up in the waiting room. I'm just going to blurt it out you know i'm here i think i've got depression and i'd like a medication you know i i really put it to her i think i must have you know been a bit abrupt yeah because i was it was yeah i was definitely you know embarrassed i think she sort of put me at ease a little bit it was a very quick conversation it went for about 60 seconds uh i i'm i know that for years when asking for antidepressants at the pharmacy i was a bit abashed you know i I I would, you know, I'd I'd walk up, give my card, I wouldn't shout it across the room. So I guess I was always a bit self-conscious about it. Right.
1: Uh, right. You know, a lot of the people, a lot of my listeners have probably heard of some of the shame I described, but boy, I remember like sitting in my primary doctor's clinic in the waiting room. I was thinking, okay, if I see somebody I know, no big deal. I could be here for an eye exam, a physical, whatever. But Eventually, my psychiatrist was at a behavioral health clinic, and then I was very worried in the beginning, so ashamed of my depression and so ashamed of being in that clinic that I thought about going to a different psychiatrist that was right. farther away from my workplace and in a different city. Right, <laughs> like, right. That's yeah, how- yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I, 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 I understand that. I remember uh, later, many years later, I walked out of a psychiatrist's office, and I walked into a person that I knew vaguely and i felt extremely embarrassed until i realized that he was walking in of course yeah, so rest right to the of a, same place there was there was yeah so there was some degree of the 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 embarrassment sort of uh evened itself out, right? But yes, right. I, I totally get what you're talking about. So uh,
1: so you got your medication from a GP, which is, you know, I've heard up to like 80% of folks on antidepressants get their first antidepressant from a GP. I'm not sure how accurate that yeah, is.
0: Yeah, that's right, exactly. 80 to 90% of all prescriptions for antidepressants are written by GPs, okay. not psychiatrists, that's right.
1: And, and so what was that like when you first got it? And, you know, I know you do a lot of work around – uh, tapering and weaning off of medications. Was there a conversation at that point about the difficulties of weaning?
0: Uh, no. Short answer, no. It was in the year about, uh, what year was it? It was probably about the year 2000, 2001. Uh, no, it wasn't mentioned at all. It was, It was. Uh, I've got a uh, trial pack here. Why don't you try this one? Uh, that was a, That was about it. That and was about did,
1: it. It, uh, did it take you the typical, you know, four to six weeks or so, or, or eight weeks to feel a difference or how, how was, what was your first experience on that medication? Like,
0: um, look, I had a number of side effects. I, uh, I felt a bit woozy. I felt a bit intoxicated. Uh, I felt I had a funny yawning sensation, which I've learned is quite common. Uh, I felt a bit, I felt a bit funny I came back and asked for a different medication because I thought that first one didn't suit me. Uh, How quickly was,
1: after you had started were you back asking can't for
0: remember, a not I think one. I waited a couple of weeks, I think a couple of weeks, maybe a month. Okay. Felt very funny, came back, uh, was given another one. I sort of cycled through about three, I think, all SSRIs. They all made me feel a bit funny. You know, I, I... I I think I had used ecstasy once or twice in my life at that time. And I remember feeling this feels a little bit, not as strong, but a little bit similar. I feel like, you know, I've had half a beer or I've had something. I felt a little bit uh, different. Um, uh, Eventually, I sort of came back, I think, three times. Uh, After about three months, I sort of thought, oh, look, they all seem to have side effects. I'll just stick to this one. And I took that drug for many years after that it was Lexapro or Escitalopram.
1: Okay. Yeah, it seems like uh, c- Citalopram is one that they start often that I hear about GPs starting with.
0: Yeah, they're all, uh, It's it varies a bit between countries. American doctors tend to give out drugs that are newer because they're often advertised more that's a bit true in Australia. It's a bit less true in England. They tend to use the same drugs, not the newer ones. So in 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 England and in America and Australia, citalopram and escitalopram are all fairly common drugs.
1: Yeah, and uh, escitalop.
0: Uh, it's a bit of a tongue twister. It yeah, is exactly. Lexapro is easier to say. It is, yeah. it, it, yes.
1: and so yes. I'm going to stick with Lexapro because it's easier That's to say. Fine. But that is one where I have a nightmare story of, and that was, you know, when I went. Back to my, uh, it was as I was hitting a very deep, dark depression and I started to have generalized thoughts of suicide and I went to my psychiatric PA at the time and said, hey, you know, I'm having generalized thoughts of suicide. Could this be the meds or could it be the depression? And his response was, yes, it could be either. And he upped my dosage of Lexapro to a point where another psychiatrist later told me they would have never upped because the efficacy after a certain point shows no more beneficial benefits. And uh, I I ended up with like a plan and I couldn't get thoughts of of this planned suicide out of my head. And one day I dreamt of it and it scared the hell out of me. And that's when I ended up uh, taking time off of work and checking myself into a partial hospitalization program.
0: Yeah. That experience is not that uncommon. I think most people don't appreciate that uh, the antidepressants come with a black box warning on them from the FDA that they increase thoughts of suicide in people less than the age of 24 because there's good evidence of that. There's also evidence that they increase suicide attempts, suicidal thoughts in, in, in adults older than 25. So at the moment, the debate in the academic literature is whether antidepressants have no effect on suicide or whether they increase the suicide rate. So I think uh, it's not as unusual as you would think to have increased suicidality, increased thoughts of suicide on on, on antidepressants because these antidepressants have quite unpredictable effects on people. So I don't – you're certainly not the first person I've spoken to that has had increased suicidal thoughts uh, when taking one of these very common antidepressants, uh, SSRIs, like escitalopram or lexapro.
1: Right, right. So – uh, so you ended up, it sounds like you finally, after cycling through several different antidepressants, you landed on one and you were like, okay, I'm just going to stick out some of these side effects. Did the side effects go away? And is this the med? I, I think I read you were on one medication for 15 years before you decided to start to wean or taper off. It, it,
0: exa- exactly. So um, did the side effects go away? I think they probably did a little bit. You know, they do tend to over time because that's you becoming tolerant to the drug. So, you know, in the same way we we become tolerant to caffeine, uh, you become tolerant to antidepressants. Uh, so I think it probably did, or certainly didn't become the central thing in my in my mind. I think I just accepted. I think I just became used to it. I did feel a bit funny, uh, but I, I just kind of I think I just accustomed to it. Right. Uh, and and I did keep taking it for, for 15 years. I just sort of thought, from everything I've heard, these drugs must be helpful. So I didn't notice any big difference apart from the side effects. But I thought, you know, I'm taking my medicine, so to speak. So I thought I should keep taking it. And so I did year after year.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I can really relate to that. For me, I believe that uh, recovering from depression is kind of a multi-pronged approach like there are many things to do to help recover from depression and for me one of those pieces and i was on the med for 10 years was that medicine and i just kept telling myself if this is one of those things helping me i'm not going to stop because i don't want i and I and i know it sounds a little cliche but i would not want my worst enemy to go through what i went through yeah. Um, and so I always kind of had an excuse to not stop my medication until, you know, recently.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I, I guess I have a slightly different view from you. I thought that I should take it because it was useful for me. In retrospect, which I can go into, I don't think that was the case at all. But But, you know, obviously there's a variety of experiences. But in retrospect, looking back now, I think the medication caused me – a lot of health problems Yeah, um, that actually made life much harder for me than, than better.
1: Well, I, and I think that the reason I decided to, st- to wean was because I have my own health issues, nothing major, but like high blood pressure that I can't get down. And the more yeah. research I do, you know, there, there isn't a lot of research on long-term use of these antidepressants that I understand were really created for short-term use.
0: Yeah. Uh, So uh, it's actually, it's a really interesting point. So, you know, number one, exactly the studies on antidepressants uh, are very short term. They're almost entirely done by the manufacturers of the drugs. There's there's a huge, huge issue. It is a huge issue, which we can talk about. There's about a thousand studies on antidepressants, about 98 percent of them go for less than 12 weeks. They, of course, adverse effects or what are called side effects by the drug companies, you know, don't, might not develop in those few weeks. You may not have time to have an effect on people. There are quite a few long-term studies now done by independent researchers. The only issue with those studies are they're not placebo-controlled, double-blind, randomized controlled trials which is a very expensive thing to do that the drug companies do. It's easy to do that for six weeks. It's very hard to put someone in a trial for 10 years, give someone a dummy pill, give someone an antidepressant. So the way these studies are done is there are very large databases, a lot of them in Britain, where every single time you go to see a GP, they register uh, certain facts about you, certain diagnoses. It's anonymized and researchers can look at that data. And so they can see what happens to people who are on antidepressants for 10 years, what happens to similar people who are not on antidepressants, and they compare the health outcomes of those two groups. And there's problems with those sort of studies because the people on antidepressants are obviously depressed. The people they're compared to may not be depressed or may not be as depressed. And so it's not quite clear if it's down to depression or antidepressants, but There are now about a dozen studies and they all find very similar things. People who are on antidepressants for many years will have the following increased risks. There's about a 30% increased risk of becoming obese. If you're already overweight, there's a 30% chance of uh, transitioning to being very obese. There's a doubling of cardiovascular disease. There's a doubling of mortality, of early death. There's an increase in strokes, in falls and fractures for older people. There's an increased risk of osteoporosis. There's an increased risk of cataracts. And there's an increased risk of liver disease. Oh so, my God. I mean, I, and I think what you've got to realize is, you know, these drugs affect every cell in the body. It doesn't just target the brain. It doesn't just target depressed thoughts. It affects the biology of, of, of our entire system and uh, you know it hasn't been tested very much before it was released onto the market these are short-term studies that got the drugs approved and so uh, it's not surprising if you read the list of side effects that come in the packet you'll see that there are effects on every system in the body the hormonal system the, the hematological system and that is a sign that these drugs are affecting the bone marrow they're affecting uh, the thyroid gland. They're affecting all the hormones in the body. So these these are drugs with quite profound effects. Wow. And over time, they they can have a variety of different effects on on people's bodily systems.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. So where are you as far as weaning? Are you actually still in the process of weaning currently?
0: So, I. It's a slightly longer story. Uh, I ended up. i'll I'll tell it briefly (laughs) uh just briefly so i I sort of mentioned that the the drugs had a lot of negative effects in my life they only really became clear to me as i came off the drugs because it was quite hard for me to put them together while i was on the drug and i've seen that with a lot of patients now so while i was on the drug i had severe problems with daytime tiredness with concentration and memory and i was Apologies for skiding, but I had a very good memory and I was very academically strong when I was younger. Yeah. The years in my 20s, I became tighter and tighter. I started having naps during the day, which really had an impact on my life. I was stealing away from class to go and find quiet spots to fall asleep. I was stealing to my car. Uh, it became embarrassing. I also found I couldn't remember things like I used to. Uh, my concentration was off. Uh, I went to see different doctors uh, because I'm I'm from a very medical family. I was very medically inclined. I got different diagnoses. I got chronic fatigue syndrome. I got narcolepsy. That's the sort of one that stuck. I was given further drugs for narcolepsy. I was given stimulants. Uh, Then I was given drugs to make up for some of the side effects of that. I ended up on a variety of drugs by the end, a variety of psychiatric drugs. Uh, At some point, it actually became a real impediment to my life I worked part-time because I was so exhausted mm. I uh, I used to walk around the hospital working as a psychiatrist with a clipboard and a piece of paper I'd write down everything that everybody said to me because if I didn't write it down I wouldn't remember a thing that i had been told if I was asked about a patient the day before I couldn't remember it wow. uh, and, and I began to think I actually began to consider this is me in my, in my 30s. Uh, I may have to take early retirement because I just simply can't do my job. I, I'd actually topped final year medical school. So there was a very big change in, in my uh, ability to, to, to think straight, basically.
1: And at the time, did, did the idea of a connection to all of these symptoms and your antidepressants, was that on your radar at all?
0: Not really. Not really. I was being told by doctors it was it was narcolepsy. Uh, it was a different condition uh, that affected my sleep, that affected my concentration, affected my memory. Uh, it's really complex,
1: I, right? Because if yeah. your sleep is impacted, that can affect
0: yeah. your memory, your
1: focus, and everything else, right? And it's easy yeah. to write off the antidepressants and say, well, you have narcolepsy, and that's causing you all these other issues.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, now I know... Uh, in retrospect, I know that these a- antidepressants, the SSRIs like Lexapro, uh, similar drugs, the SNRIs like venlafaxine or Efexor, are, are well known to disrupt sleep. That is
1: cause- so, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is strikes so much at home for me um, because I have been falling asleep. I can be in a thriller movie theater watching, yeah. I mean, in a theater watching a thriller and fall asleep. I can be uh, the two minutes, last two minutes of a super exciting sporting event um, at home watching it and fall asleep. Um, I have fallen asleep playing the guitar um, and I was recently diagnosed with um, with sleep apnea.
0: Right. I mean, so, I mean, I, I, I strongly relate to your story. I used to, I used to drive, I had to drive to a hospital that was several hours from where I lived. I was so tired. I would drive with the with the air conditioner down as cold as it could go. The windows open, music blaring, because I was so afraid of falling asleep while driving. Uh, I fell asleep in lectures. I I napped on the ground of public bathrooms in hospitals because I was so tired. I'd use my jacket as a pillow. It wow. became daytime fatigue. Became overwhelmed my life. You know, it made me think about giving up my career. It had a huge effect on my relationships. It had a huge effect on my sense of self because I began to be a very undependable person. Yeah. Uh, is, is it possible
1: that the antidepressant actually caused narcolepsy, or are you at a point of saying, I don't have and never did have narcolepsy, this is an antidepressant side
0: effect? So I'll, I'll tell you the facts. Uh, so uh, the, the, the objective fact is SSRIs, and SNRIs, the most common antidepressants, clearly disrupt sleep. Study after study shows they change sleep architecture. Wow. Uh, they cause more awakenings, they cause more disruptions. Uh, in, in these studies, inevitably, psychiatrists conclude this interruption of sleep must be part of the mechanism of action of antidepressants. So they always interpret it as something positive but if you take away that kind of ideological glean, what the studies show is that antidepressants uh, interrupt natural sleep architecture. You know, an architecture that has evolved over uh, you know millions of years. Perman-
1: uh, permanently,
0: or if it, he- it tends to be when you're when you're on them. No, it's not. There's no there's no studies. That's a good question. No studies have looked after people have stopped the drugs. But it seems likely that it's when people are, are on the drugs that these effects are there. Uh, if you open up the patient information leaflet, the little folded up thin piece of paper inside the drug packets, it will say for most of these antidepressants that impaired concentration or memory is one of the listed side effects. My, uh, This is where I'm slightly editorialising. I, I wonder, exactly as you just said, whether disrupting sleep, might disrupt memory formation and disrupt concentration. That seems to fit together in my mind. Right. Um, So what's what's happened to me is I ended up coming off the drugs. I've come off them very slowly, and I'll, I'll talk about why I did it so slowly. As I've come off the drug, my memory's improved, my concentration is improved, my daytime fatigue is almost gone. I don't nap during the day anymore. Uh, I've gone back to a sleep doctor, uh, uh, kind of an academic one in, in 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 London, and they've said, yes, you probably never had narcolepsy. Uh, these drugs uh, can interrupt sleep. But we don't we don't often change them because we figure people need them, uh, and you probably had a a bit of this uh, being a, a late owl probably played into it. So my interpretation is. I was a bit of a late out, I think that's part of my family, uh, but I think the drugs made me a lot more tired during the day, and I think that got to a threshold that met you know certain criteria that got me diagnosed as narcolepsy. So I think I never had narcolepsy. Yeah. Uh, and that the drugs, maybe not completely themselves but definitely contributed to that tiredness. right and I've got to say, you're not the first person, to pick up on that when I've talked about it, a lot of my patients, a lot of friends, a lot of people on different uh, 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 online forums say exactly the same thing that during that while they were taking antidepressants, daytime tiredness, falling asleep was a huge issue for them. Wow. So it's very common.
1: Yeah, yeah. and are you did you mention, are you completely off of the meds now?
0: So so i'm I'm not. So at the at the height of my psychiatric career, such as it was, as a patient, not as a not as a not on the other side of the desk, <laughs> I was on I was on five drugs, five psychiatric drugs. That was two thousand and eighteen. Uh, i've I've been weaning very slowly. I've made some errors which have slowed me down. I'm now down to two drugs. I'm on a very tiny dose of lexapro, so, I was originally on 20 milligrams at some point. I'm now on 0.2 milligrams, so one one-fifth of a milligram. And I'll be off that fairly soon, and I'm on a small dose of one other drug. So I'm I'm off 95% of the medication that I was on wow. and heading towards the, the, the exit door. And, and when
1: you talk about slow cessation of the drugs, you are talking a year or more, it sounds uh, like.
0: For some people, I in some ways i'm a bit of a bad example because i've worked very hard uh the last few years and that's a bit gotten in the way of tapering as quickly as i would have liked to but yes uh tapering or weaning definitely takes a lot of people months and some people more than a year so i think that's a key thing because most people when they hear when they think slow and they think tapering, often think weeks but what we've learned from studies and and a lot of clinical observations is most people need months or more than a year to get off the drugs safely, without without huge trouble.
1: Right. So uh, I want to talk more about the tapering off of drugs. But before we do, I'd also like to ask you, I, I know you've been a part of some research and papers around whether or not the, the chemical imbalance even is actually a driving force of depression. Like, what is the cause of depression?
0: yeah. So this is a this is a huge topic and it it was led to a huge discussion uh, around the world. Uh, Look, for many years, the messaging has been depression is caused by chemical imbalance. Uh, I know lots of people that were told that by their doctors. I don't know if that's true for you, uh, but it's true for lots of people that I've spoken to. It's sort of a bit of a meme. Uh, It's kind of chemical imbalance is kind of the colloquial term for the low serotonin hypothesis, this idea that depression is caused by not enough serotonin. And it was a hypothesis that it was put forward 50 years ago by academics. And basically, there's been research for the last 50 years, looking in people's cerebral spinal fluid, in brains, of people that have passed away, in urine, in blood. And it's all really come out null. You know, there there, there are no big differences between people that are depressed and people that are healthy volunteers and in academic circles at least it's been disbanded so there are there's article after article by academic psychiatrists saying you know we never really said this this is uh, a sort of just so story that not very well informed doctors tell their patients you know the evidence is not there so we wrote a paper really just summarizing the evidence quite a an academic paper it was done over a couple of years very carefully and we found what other people have found which is that there is no serotonin difference for some reason it was picked up a bit by the media uh, because it was clearly news to the public you know it may not have been news to academic psychiatrists in their ivory towers but it was news to the public yeah because if you ask the public in surveys what causes depression 85 to 90 percent In America in Australia Europe say it's caused by a chemical imbalance right right and and, and why is it that some people think it in part because drug companies put in their ads there was a great very famous ad in America for Zoloft with a very sad blob and they showed that inside the blobs brain there was too little serotonin and they poured in Zoloft and the blob became happy and started you know enjoying its time with friends so it's been communicated you know to the public Yeah. And psychiatrists, many of them have taken this message in papers on TV to the public. So it's no wonder people believe that.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the big pharmaceuticals is part of what's been driving that message.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So it was amplified by drug companies because, of course, if you believe that your problems come down to low serotonin or a chemical imbalance, then it makes obvious sense that you want to go and take a drug that'll increase those levels back to normal. I mean, if you were told you've got too little thyroid hormone, then taking thyroid hormone sounds completely sensible. Right? You know, you'd right. be irresponsible not to potentially.
1: So, so my first question about this is the placebo effect and what effect that has when people are taking antidepressants. Because if it's not about serotonin, what are the antidepressants doing to help other than Perhaps the placebo effect, and then I want to follow up by talking about if it's not a chemical
0: imbalance, what is it? So maybe I'll ask, i uh, answer so the second question first because it'll make more sense of the of the of the first question. So, what is causing depression? Um, sometimes I find it funny. I see other psychiatrists and neuroscientists ask this question. And they scratch their head. They say we don't have enough research. We need to do more studies. If you ask your grandmother or my grandmother, they'd have an answer. And the answer they would say is people get depressed when life goes wrong. And actually, there's there's three and a half decades of research finding that my grandmother was exactly right. Because if you can count the number of stressful life events that someone has in a given year, you can predict quite accurately whether they'll be depressed or not. So stressful life events are losing a job, moving house, uh, uh, losing a spouse, uh, relationship breakup, being diagnosed with a new physical illness, things that that overwhelm us. The more events like that you have in a year, the higher your chance of becoming depressed. Uh, there's also it's mediated by your neuroticism. So how neuroticism basically means how sensitive you are to stress. The more sensitive you are, the more likely you are to be depressed. And yes. There's probably a little bit of genes and early life experiences and personality in that. So there's a whole mix, but with those two factors, how neurotic you are and how stressful life is, you get a pretty, you can, you can work out with quite a lot of accuracy who will be depressed. And there's probably a a bigger influence of stressful life events when you're young, which can have an even more profound effect. Uh, So, you know, we, we actually know, uh, that even this from other species. If you overwhelm, if you stress out a a dog, if you take a, a monkey away from its troop, uh, the monkey will start scratching itself until it bleeds. The dog who is frustrated in getting to uh, food rewards will start will lie down and whimper. When we are overwhelmed, right. when we when we have our capacity to cope exhausted, we become depressed.
1: But what about uh, we hear? So a couple quick questions about that. Sure. One is, does that then actually cause some kind of chemical imbalance, even though that wasn't the cause? But it sounds like the whole chemical imbalance thing is has been proven wrong. So I'm wondering the impacts of that on one's physiological state and then also you hear stories and maybe these are just outliers of people who are making a ton of money they're happy yet they fall into a deep dark depression and in fact that's kind of how I would Talk about my second depression, which makes me wonder if there are different types of depression. My first one was clearly situational. I was put into a super high stress level position. I had a yeah. five-year-old, a three-year-old, and two newborns at home. Yes. and, and oh. I, that was the situation, right? And yeah, it was an sure, easy, sure. easy, um, easily identifiable reason for becoming depressed. My second and hopefully last bout, which was much worse. I, I had voluntarily stepped down I had a new boss I was getting along with I had a great first review yet and it was three years to the day from my first depression I sank into my worst depression and became
0: suicidal right so let me let me unpack a few things there
1: yeah, sorry that was a lot it's all right. that's all right
0: that's all right I can I can I can I can if I can remember what I've, what I've got to say um, so I'll, I'll stick I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll stick to the uh, the, the, the just that you know chemistry question first is yeah. this a chemical imbalance so I think there's a philosophical error people are making here so uh, in one sense everything we think and feel is chemistry or, or, or electricity you know that's how the brain everything's in the brain the brain works on two things electricity and chemistry so feeling sad feeling happy feeling hungry feeling corny whatever it is it's all Chemistry and electricity. So you could say that feeling hungry is a chemical imbalance or 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 something chemical And so is any form of mood so In in a truistic way, yes Everything is chemistry and you can call something a balance or an imbalance although. There's no real Meaning to balance or imbalance because we don't the chemicals are changing in our mind every second. Right, right So I, I think what is happening is a category error here so I, I, I give an example, it's like a friend of yours coming up to you and saying, I'm really down, I'm really grief stricken and depressed because my mother has just died. And you saying to them, look, I don't want to deal with the superficiality of this. Let's get to the real core of why you're upset. Let's get you in a brain scan and work out what the chemical imbalance in your brain is. You know you know that that is a ridiculous, inhuman response. Right, right. It sounds laughable, but that is what we're doing as a culture right now to, to millions, to tens of millions of people. We're making exactly that mistake, right? So so I I absolutely I'm sure there's chemistry involved in any kind of mood state I'm sure serotonin and noradrenaline and thousands of chemicals are involved right. What I'm equally sure about is it's not low serotonin. So, you know, there's a lot of um, Kind of wordsmithing happening the idea of a chemical imbalance is about there being low serotonin that can be fixed by increasing serotonin with drugs Uh, That's a very different prospect to yes, there's something There's some sort of chemistry involved in some complex way that we don't understand first of all and and therefore maybe shouldn't be Interfering with too much. So uh, I would say yes, there's chemistry involved No one knows what that chemistry is and the idea that we are clever enough to be able to press on one button to sort it out Is a little bit far-fetched I would say right uh, in in relation to your are there different sorts of depression? Is there caused and uncaused? I'll say a couple of things there. One, you know, where some sometimes you said uh, people talk about these rich and happy and family, and suddenly they get depressed. And you're saying maybe you're one of those people. I would say in my clinical practice for 15 years, talking to friends and family, I've never seen that once in my life. Okay. Every every person has reasons. I think sometimes the reasons are complicated and not easy to put your finger on right which is sometimes where uh, Therapy or reading or whatever it is uh, some sort of insight driven uh, uh, Thing can help you work out what it is, but I have never seen this uh, 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 Person put into Newspaper articles that they everything is happy in their life and they feel fine And the second thing is once you introduce drugs then things change Right. So once you're on a drug or other drugs, you know, people often end up on more than one drug, there's withdrawal effects, there's side effects, there's interrupting sleep, there's increasing suicidality, then it becomes a different game. Then you're talking about a different a brain that's been that's been changed. Yeah. yeah so absolutely. That, that can complicate the picture.
1: Right. Wow. So so you're saying even even And even in my case, I wonder sometimes, because it was three years to the day, practically, my brother tells me, because I emailed him, and I wonder sometimes, maybe I wasn't fully recovered, and maybe I already was still in a state where I hadn't come back to my
0: normal. Maybe. I mean, to get, you know, you've, in your explanation of your first depression, you've four children, high-pressure job, you know, you're giving... I'm stressed just listening to that description. You're giving, you know, the story of someone who's under a lot of pressure yeah. you know, and is overwhelmed by responsibilities and 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 worries. Yeah. And and then you actually, in the next sentence, you gave the solution, which is, you know, new job, less pressured, uh, a supportive boss. You've reduced, you've just described reducing the pressure on yourself. Yeah. Um, and to me, those sort of, you know, the sort of things that your grandmother might have told you to do Or a friend might have told you to do are obscured by a lot of complicated discussion about neurochemistry and medications and side effects because in general people you know solve their depression by changing their circumstances to the ability that they have to, to make those changes which is what you've described right and one of the things that I see that I find saddest is when people are chasing the right chemical combination the right cocktail before they can start their life again, yeah. you know, they, which, which was me, which was absolutely me. I, I always I talk about this uh, silly third person. That was me for a while because <laughs> I was very ensconced in this paradigm of, you know, I did a PhD. I've sort of uh, knocked back neurochemistry. I spent four and a half years in a molecular biology lab looking only at neurochemistry in depression. So I, uh, out of the two of us, I'm definitely the one that was the deepest in neurochemical thinking about depression right Uh, you know i dealt with cells in a dish and genes and proteins only for four and a half years so you know i was i was deep in the deep end yeah yeah chasing Uh, it chasing it exactly
1: so let's get into tapering and weaning well and before we do, actually, one quick question: I recently heard, and you might have even been on this show. NPR, National Public Radio, did a story. Um, just it was a it was an hour long. Pro, it was uh, yes. forty yeah. minutes long. Twenty minutes was on um, Ritalin and the the yes. kind of yes, yes. But the yes. other the other part um, you were on, I believe, with another psychiatrist, and I'm pretty sure she had said, at least today. If you put somebody on Effexor, which is veneflexing, venila- or Paxil, I believe yeah. the the two that are known to be some of the most challenging drugs to wean off of. If you prescribe those as a psychiatrist without a conversation around the challenges of weaning, it is unethical. And I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Uh,
0: I I completely agree with with uh, with her. I think more than. I think more than that. I think it's a legal risk increasingly to doctors. Um, it's happened. Bef- it's, this story has actually happened once before, much more in Europe, not in America, which is a bit less sensitive to patients' um, issues than in Europe. Uh, benzodiazepines like Valium and uh, Xanax are almost banned in Europe and England. They're very much, very much used in, in the U.S. still. Part of that is because patients started suing their doctors for not warning them about withdrawal effects from those drugs and similar things are happening now with antidepressants. So I absolutely think uh, that the, the female psychiatrist on that show was right. Yeah. It, it, it is, you know, patients are supposed to be given informed consent. Yeah. That is they're supposed to know the, the benefits of the drugs are being given, the harms and the alternatives. And one of the very important harms is the difficulty people can have in stopping those drugs. Yep. And and it should really be known that some people are unable to stop venlafaxine or Effexor and paroxetine uh, because they, the withdrawal effects are so severe and can be so disabling and upsetting to someone's life that they simply can't get off them. Yeah. And I know lots of people in that circumstance. So that should be a part of, of informed consent.
1: Yeah. And I, uh, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, that psychiatrists, when they oftentimes, many, not all, um, when they put somebody on a medication, they think they're doing their job just by talking about possible side effects.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think this is a big issue in psychiatry. Psychiatrists you know, want to do well for their patients. They're well-intentioned. Yeah. They, because they, I was, you know, I've been through the same training as, as, as they have been. You think you're doing the right thing by giving a drug, you've been taught that it's helpful. You want the patient to make the right decision, which in your mind is to take the drug, and you often sugarcoat things. Yes. You know, I'm not the only person to, to do that, but uh, you know, you sugarcoat it, you say it's more effective than it really is, and you play down the harms. Yeah. You know, I've, I've heard lots of doctors who say, take the patient information leaflet and throw it out. Yeah. it's written by the lawyers. Wow. Wow. You know? and,
1: and some of that could even be conscious or subconsciously doing that
0: could could be. Yeah. Um,
1: so I also want to mention before we talk about the weaning itself, and the tapering, um, there was a quote that I read from you in one of your papers that I thought was really compelling many prominent academics with close ties to the pharmaceutical companies attacked academics and patients who complained of trouble coming off of their antidepressants.
0: Absolutely. That's not, it's not historical. That's, that's present. God, that is so,
1: shocking. And, yeah. Oh, my God.
0: Look, there's a lot of, you know, I think in general, you know, doctors are well-meaning people who, who get into medicine to help, help patients and, you know, have a stable job. Most of my friends are doctors, so I'm not. Uh, but there are conflicts of interest that arise, not to your suburban GP or, or average psychiatrist, but there are people called key opinion leaders. These are the prominent psychiatrists, people at Harvard and Stanford and the equivalent in, in Europe. And these people become hired spokespeople for drug companies. You know, I, I sort of like to say, you know, you never hear from the CEO of a um, Cosmetics from Estee Lauder you hear from Kim Kardashian. She becomes the face of a cosmetics injury The same thing happens in medicine, but it's a little bit more austere and uh, formal there's tweed jackets and there's lots of degrees but you don't hear from the CEO of Pfizer or AstraZeneca you hear from a professor of psychiatry at Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge or Stanford telling you that this drug is very safe and effective and those people are paid by the drug companies yeah. to put those articles and, and and speeches out there. And so these people's careers have been built putting their name on a drug and their integrity is at stake when the drugs are criticized. Mm-hmm. It makes them look bad. I mean, I, I always ask, where are the doctors who stood up and said that OxyContin is not addictive? Because they were professors at Harvard and Stanford and everywhere else. Where are they now? Because there was lots of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, clearly they've either crawled into a hole or, or said so they never said it. But the same thing is happening today. Uh, you know, people, you know, I would, I mean, I've, I kind of understand it. If I'd said, if I, you know, I'd come on the show and I'd said this drug is great and it turns out it's causing lots of people harm. I look like I'm either, you know, uh, not telling the truth or I'm twisting things or I, or I'm ignorant so it's very challenging. Right. And so these psychiatrists on Twitter, you can see it's like, a, it's like a, a brawl on there. To patients who are talking about how much trouble they have coming off the drugs, some of those people are doctors. Uh, they get uh, vilified by, by these psychiatrists. They right. get told that they're that troublemakers. Amazing. They're Scientologists. They're neurotic. You know, There's a lot of uh, victim blaming.
1: All, all essentially, in my mind... Based on
0: greed, I mean, I yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to. I'm already in trouble enough. On the on, on Those these were my sites. words. I don't wanna, exactly, not my words. But that's those it. were my I, words, not. I understand Dr. your Horowitz. interpretation. I understand your interpretation. Uh,
1: so, um, so let's talk about weaning and tapering. And I'm happy to talk, talk about my own personal situation as well, um, because I have been on Venlafaxine, Venlafaxine, yes. which is um, Effexor, Effexor, and and I'm not. Uh, I am not a doctor and I'm not promoting the drug or talking poorly about the drug. I'm just sharing my own personal experience. Um, I started weaning in October last year and my plan that I created by myself with my brother who is a family doctor and another family doctor who I know, it's really kind of incredible to me. My psychiatrist has been completely hands off. In fact... Uh, so any at any rate, from it started in October. I'm not going to be done till the end of March. It's a six-month plan. And yeah. my doctor, when I told them, hey, I'm thinking about weaning, they said, okay, no problem. I was on extended release. And yeah. they gave me essentially, I think it was a two or three or maybe four-week plan. and And it was just going from the extended release to the next step down that the drug comes in with extended release for two weeks and the next step down of extended release. And I was like, hell no. Like everything I've read, that is way too fast. So, um, I created my own plan. I gradually moved from extended release to immediate release only because immediate release came in smaller increments. Yes. And I, I, so I gradually shifted from extended release to immediate release, and then every drop down the smallest immediate release um, tablet is a twenty-five uh, is a twenty-five milligram, and, yeah. and it comes scored. So I cut those in half, and uh, and eventually that. So I will be off uh, March twenty-fourth. So so far it's been going great. Now I've heard you say and others say. Going from the smallest dose to zero is the most complicated spot. Um yeah. and, and I also have kind of a backup plan. I've read about, you know, switching to a different antidepressant eventually that is easier to wean off of. But that's where I'm at in my plan. Okay. And it was self created. And I just the only reason I use my psychiatrist is to say, Hey, I need some more twenty five milligram pills. Yeah, and sometimes I get an email back saying, "Whoa, you already asked for more!" Like, what's going on? And I say, "I'm happy to share with you my plan."
0: <laughs> yeah, so let me let me reflect on a few things there. I mean, first of all, you're not the only person around uh, who has had to come up with a plan by themselves or with family members. Luckily, uh, you've got some doctors around there. Your plan is not very good. You're not going to be off your drug by March 24th. I'll start off by saying provocatively and explain to you why. Okay. Um, well, that sucks uh, to hear, first yeah, of all. But sorry, okay. Sorry, apologies. No, no ahead, problem. But I'm, I'm going to save you some trouble. Uh, uh, the reason why this situation occurs so you, you may be aware, as we speak, there are hundreds of thousands of people on peer support sites, on places like Surviving Antidepressants, uh, on Facebook sites getting advice on how to come off their antidepressants, and they're all there for the exact same reason as you, which is their psychiatrist has no idea how to get them off their drugs. They've either, either unlike you, they have believed their psychiatrist and tried to come off in four weeks and ended up in a screaming mess, Uh, or some of them, like you, have realised that their psychiatrist has given them a very dangerous plan. So why, first of all, the first question to ask is, how have we ended up in a situation where there is better advice on Facebook, on uh, peer support sites from your friends and family than there is from your psychiatrist? It's a pretty, you know, normally the story would go in the opposite direction. You'd say doctors know what they're doing. People who are getting advice on social media, you know, are clueless. I can tell you it's the exact opposite. And I, and, I, I can, and the reason I know that is I received advice on how to come off my antidepressants from peer support sites. Uh, it worked. Advice given to me by doctors didn't work. Uh, I wrote about that process in an academic article in the Lancet Psychiatry, one of the uh, most important psychiatric journals in the world. Uh, that advice has been translated into the advice in the national guidelines in England. So now in England, the national guidelines are completely different from the guidelines in America. They used to be the same. They used to say what your doctor said, come off in a few weeks. In England, they've been rewritten over the last couple of years. And they say what the advice is on these online peer support uh, forums because those people, by uh, force of necessity, worked it out. Uh, So it's a very, it's a kind of peculiar situation. American guidelines and English guidelines are completely opposite to one another. American guidelines for antidepressants say it's easy to come off these drugs mostly you can do it in a few weeks English guidelines say it can be really hard to come off these drugs and it can take people months or more than a year you've got to go down to very tiny doses Uh, people sometimes need to use liquid versions of drugs to measure out drop by drop and they sometimes need to count out bead by bead and and open up their drugs so Uh, that's the kind of overall context. And that's because, uh, you know, there are, I mentioned, there's a thousand studies on how to, on how to start antidepressants and there is, uh, less than half a dozen on how to stop them. And it has been absent from medical education, essentially. So the gag I like to say is the first lecture I heard about how to stop psychiatric drugs was one that I gave. I had never had a lecture in all of medical school all of my psychiatry training on how to stop any psychiatric drug it just wasn't a part of the curriculum every lecture was about how to start a drug or a different therapy right right. so it's just not part of the curriculum uh and i think that's because you know a lot of uh the key the key academics in psychiatry are very influenced by what drug companies want and drug company research informs guidelines. So the focus has not been on stopping. So I think that's where, that's right. why we've ended up where we are now, Right. where, you know, your psychiatrist doesn't know how to stop your drugs safely.
1: So, so where does my plan go wrong? And in the larger picture, what are the important pieces? I mean, in, in my mind, I'm guessing you're going to say this, I've got to go smaller doses at the end because so far it's been smooth. Um, yes. So far, so, it's been really smooth, but I'm guessing you're going to say at the end I can't go from a 12.5 ca- tablet to
0: zero. No. So I'll 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 give you a, a brief I'll give you a brief summary and then I'll talk about it a little bit more. Going from I don't know, you, let's say you started on 150 milligrams. Yep, that's of, where I was of efexor. Yep. Uh, going down 25 milligrams to 125 milligrams. Uh, compare that going down from 25 milligrams to zero. It sounds the same. It's the same number of milligrams, but... Percentage-wise, it's different. It's, it's the effect on the brain. So uh, your drug... And just
1: an to... I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just right. to clarify, right. I'm talking 12 and a half. I know it's sure. probably okay. the same thing, okay. but I'm so talking it's even, about...
0: Even even more. I'll, I'll So yes, going down from 150 to 137.5 sounds the same as going down from 12.5 to zero. But in terms of effect on the brain it's about a 20-fold difference so i'll just quickly explain why the drugs affect the serotonin system Uh, there's a whole lot of neuroimaging that shows you how much effect that the drug has at different doses you think that doubling the dose of a drug will double the effect a sort of a straight line if you can imagine a graph in actual fact it's a very steep curve that flattens out so when there's only a few milligrams of a drug about in your brain, every milligram has a very big effect because all the receptors are open. As you get to higher doses, more and more of the receptors are closed. And so every extra milligram of drug has less and less effect. So it's kind of like the law of diminishing returns. It's a very steep hill to start with when you're increasing your dose, and then it flattens out. So you get this kind of curve that then turns into a plateau. You're coming back the other way. As you're going down your dose, it's first of all like walking down a very shallow hill and everybody says what you say. It's been easy. I don't know what all the fuss has been about. When you get, I have
1: uh, not said I don't know okay, what the fuss okay. is about.
0: Okay, okay. Sorry, sorry. I'm, 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 I'm having it up slightly, <laughs> slightly. To make it, you know, coming down, you're walking down a, a narrow, a, a slightly declined hill you know, it's not terrible. People have a few withdrawal effects. They might get a bit dizzy. They might feel a bit down. They might feel a bit anxious. Yeah. Nothing that's very upsetting. You get to an inflection point. And the inflection point is somewhere around 37.5 milligrams, 25 milligrams, and the curve turns extremely steep. So you've gone from a, a nice country walk, and now you're going down a steep incline, a steep cliff
1: and i'm at that 37.5 right now.
0: Okay. By so the you're way. about so you're you know and unfortunately lots of people uh, barrel over that cliff and don't know why. They say i they say to me i didn't think i could get off this drug because when i everything was fine i got down to 37.5 after that it was complete you know chaos. I was i couldn't sleep, i was anxious, i had panic attacks. Things that I've never had before, or much worse than I've ever had before, it means that I must need the drug. And what we've worked out is it's not that, it's that they've gone over this hump. And so, what you need to do is you need to go a lot slower. So, you could go down by 12 and a half or 25 at the beginning, but by the end, you need to go down milligram by milligram because every milligram at that point causes as much disruption as going down by 25 milligrams or even 50 milligrams at higher doses and and people don't see this um, this cliff and and nor do doctors so doctors will often say what they what he said to you just go down by even amounts go down by 37 and a half then 37 and a half and then 37 and a half again and that gets that has increasingly big effects on the brain so What the guidance in England, what I do in my clinic, and what we do in Outro Health uh, is essentially navigate people down that cliff. So uh, the big problem that comes up, it'll be be your next question, is how could you possibly do that? If your tablets are 25 milligrams and uh, the smallest you can make it is by halving the tablet into 12.5, how could you go down milligram by milligram? And that is a big practical Barrier for people uh, and makes makes life more complicated. There are a couple of ways. There are really two or three main ways. Uh, I'll give you the example of venlafaxine because that's relevant to you. Uh, In the slow release uh, form, if you open up a capsule, inside you'll find often hundreds of beads. And what lots of patients do is they count the beads. And if you've got 300 beads, making up 100 milligrams. You can take away three beads to go down by one milligram and people do that and they take and they they, they remove a few beads they remove five or ten percent of their beads every fortnight or month they wait for withdrawal symptoms to settle and they make the next reduction and if it gets too hard they slow down they pause might go back a step and they go down slower and people find a rate that they can tolerate uh, a lot of the drugs come in liquid form that I mentioned before and then you can use a small syringe screw it into your mouth and take a small dose remembering that if you take instant release it should be taken twice a day yeah because it doesn't have the same uh, it doesn't have exactly the same half-life as a long as a longer version so you take it morning and night uh, and there are also compounding pharmacies around that can make up one milligram or two milligram, or even 0.5 milligram tablets to help the process. Uh, And that's what I do. So I now run a clinic that specializes only in taking people off psychiatric drugs, particularly antidepressants, and we give them all those forms, either show them how to count beads, give them liquids, get them compounded medication, and that's also what we're doing at at Outro Health.
1: So uh, in my personal case then, if I went back if I went back to the capsules so that I would have those beads, do they have immediate release or do I go back to extended release?
0: Uh, the, the beads are extended release kind uh, of mechanism. So the beads you'd be going back to extended release. Right. Uh, and the, the, the thing to know there, and of course I should have said before, of course, you know, I'm not giving medical advice. You should go and ask your doctor what is best, but I'm talking in general terms. Yep. Yeah. The, the, the beads are themselves slow release, so the capsule around is just made of gelatin, it would dissolve in your mouth in a minute. It's not that's not where the slow release comes from. It comes from the beads. The beads are stable in our. The company itself has measured the stability of the beads in applesauce. So I think that's because they're giving it to children or to old people who can't swallow. Uh so the beads are stable if you remove them from the capsule. Uh, and you can measure out a proportion of the beads you can weigh them You can count them and in that way you can make small reductions
1: and take uh, and then you could take them without the capsule
0: You don't have to put it back together The the FDA has a warning on this the FDA says you shouldn't swallow the beads because they can irritate the throat So you can either put them back in the capsule you took them out of or you can buy uh, from a pharmacy or from Amazon Uh, Gels and capsules that cost uh, a dollar for a a bunch and put them into the little capsules before swallowing them
1: Yeah, the other issue that I've read about with that particular plan is to make sure that you continue to use the exact Same maker because those beads could vary depending on the manufacturer
0: so so different manufacturers will have different numbers of beads Some of them have mini beads in them, so you might get a capsule that has only six beads. Some of them, most of them have very tiny beads. Right. The main thing is to calculate it based on whatever you have. So if it changes, as long as you're taking the right proportion of the beads, things will be okay. People do say they react slightly differently to different manufacturers, and I have heard that enough to take that seriously. So it might be worthwhile to keep the same uh, manufacturer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And does veniflaxine, veniflaxine or Effexor, come in liquid form?
0: Uh, I know England a lot better than I know America, but I it definitely comes in liquid form in England. I'm pretty sure it does in America. Yeah. It's often a bit more expensive. I've heard a lot of doctors sort of knock back patients and say, why would you need this? Just stop the drug. You're on a very small dose. Yeah. Uh, I've had that said to myself as a patient. So uh, most doctors are not aware of... Yeah, you know, this is research we've published now four years ago in the Lancet Psychiatry. But most doctors it takes a long time for this kind of research to filter out. Yeah, uh, so most doctors aren't aware of that.
1: So uh, let's say I went with my plan. You're just yeah. saying that when I go from twelve point five to zero, I'm going to experience a hell of a lot of side effects.
0: Yeah. That so would I I probably should be
1: unbearable.
0: Yeah, so I, I sort of jumped into talking how to how to solve the problem. I should tell you what the problem is. The problem is withdrawal effects. You know, side effects have somehow come to mean what the, what the effects are while you're on the drug. The real issue here uh, gotcha, is, is withdrawal effects. Yep. Uh, in America, for a long time, they've been called discontinuation effects, which sounds a lot less uh, scary, which is why the drug companies came up with that term. But what we're really talking about is withdrawal effects. Yep. Being on a drug that increases serotonin in your brain and noradrenaline Uh, there's no evidence that anyone with depression has low serotonin or low noradrenaline so you've had abnormally high levels of chemicals in your brain you could say different wits have said there's not a chemical imbalance in depression but there is once you start taking an antidepressant because now you definitely have abnormal levels of chemicals in your brain right your brain responds to that like it will respond to nicotine or caffeine it will adapt to it it will become accustomed to that higher level what we call physical dependence not addiction because you're not craving it or you know out breaking into windows to get more effects or but you're physically dependent on it and that means when you stop it especially too quickly you'll have withdrawal effects and the withdrawal effects can can range from being mild and not a big deal to being severe and life-threatening so there are some cases of people having seizures and coming off antidepressants too quickly uh, and there are some cases of people having for the first time in their lives suicidal impulses and some people do end up taking their lives in withdrawal so it's it's useful to be cautious right. it's, not, it's not one thing to say so withdrawal effects occur in almost every system in the body because your brain and body becomes used to these chemicals. So you can have physical effects, people can feel dizzy, they can have headaches, they can have trouble with their balance, uh, they can be nauseous, they can get brain zaps, sort of a famous symptom with withdrawal where they feel like their brain is being switched off for a second or a little electrical stimulus has gone through their head, uh, a very kind of typical sign of withdrawal. On the other side, the much more confusing side, I would say, are emotional symptoms of withdrawal. So people can become depressed, anxious, have crying spells, have panic attacks. They can stop sleeping. Uh, They can, for the first time in their lives, become suicidal. How do we know this is because of withdrawal? Because it occurs even in people with no mental health problems. So there's a whole bunch of people who are given antidepressants with no mental health problems. They're given for pain, they're given for sleep troubles, they're given for the menopause. They've become a little bit of a, as you said, a a universal panacea. And even those people with no anxiety, no depression in their history can have these symptoms when they stop. So we know that they're withdrawal symptoms. And if you think about other drugs, like alcohol or Valium, uh, when you stop them or smoking, you get a lot of emotional withdrawal effects. It can be extremely confusing for patients and for doctors. Because the most common story is you walk into your doctor's office, you say, I've stopped my drug and I feel terrible. I can't sleep. I'm having panic attacks. The doctor will probably stop you after 10 seconds and say, well, you better go back on the drug. You must need it. Right. But what we've realized now is a lot of that is likely to be withdrawal effects. And the solution is not to go back on it for the rest of your life and and have you know confirmed you've got a very serious disorder. It's to come off more slowly. So I'm... I'm suggesting to you, if you went from 12 and a half to zero, it sounds like a tiny reduction in dose, but actually you're stepping out of the eighth floor window of a building. You've actually only come down. If you've gone from 200 milligrams, then you've only come down two floors. You still got four fifths of the uh, building to go. And rather than step out of the eighth floor story with all the consequences of that, when you hit the concrete, I'm suggesting it's better to go down step by step, so okay. that you don't you don't hit the ground like that. It'll take longer, uh, but you won't you won't hit the ground with the same force, and and the the force can be terrible. So it can be mild. Some people get a headache and dizziness for a week or two, and that's not the group that anyone is worried about. But right. there's another group, especially long term users, and especially Effexor and Peroxetine, can get into serious troubles. And the two most serious troubles people get is akathisia. So akathisia is a Greek term meaning um, restlessness without pause. And it describes this feeling of, of unbearable um, restlessness and, and terror, uh, which makes people often pace backwards and forwards. Uh, it's, a, it's a known side effect of antipsychotics but it can occur for people coming off antidepressants very quickly. uh, And it can lead people to become extremely agitated. uh, And some of the people will take their lives. So the second major risk is suicide in coming off uh, a drug too fast. I've seen both of those, unfortunately, uh, which is why I've become cautious. It's better to take a few extra months than to risk those kind of effects. It will not happen to everybody. So I don't want to discourage people from coming off. Um, but it is a risk and it's a good reason to come off slowly. Yeah. Uh, and you can always speed up if it's too slow kind of thing. I always encourage people to start slow. If it's, if it, if it's, if it's easy, speed up, but don't, don't ever race.
1: Yeah. And I have no problem taking my time. I mean, I've been on them long enough. I want to make it smoothly. Um, it's been interesting though. I, I accidentally missed a dose for 24 hours and with immediate release, I'm doing an AM and a PM.
0: Right, okay. I
1: missed twenty four hours and had zero side effects that I was aware of, which then part of me was like, "Oh, I should just stop," but I did not do that. I thought, "Nope, I'm going to stay on it," but I thought that might be good foreshadowing for me coming off. Like maybe it will be continued to
0: be smooth. It is so, so that's you bring up an interesting question, and that is uh, why does some people have an easy time and some people have a very hard time? So. I think, I think yes, I think it is a good foreshadowing. Missing a day with venlafaxine can cause trouble. You know, the question that I ask patients is, have you ever forgotten your drug when you've gone on a holiday for three or four days? What happened to you then? One day sometimes is too short as a test. I'm not suggesting you do this now, but uh, in the past, if people say, I had to come home from my holiday, I was so dizzy, I felt so sick, you know, I left Greece, I had to go back to New York, I know that that's someone who's very prone to withdrawal effects if people say i was away for a week i didn't even notice it that to me is a good prognosticator i yeah, agree right um there is a lot of variation in who gets severe and who gets mild effects we're not quite sure what determines that we know a few factors we put out a paper about this uh, a few months ago length of use is definitely a big factor more than three years puts you in a very high risk category yeah and certain drugs and unfortunately those drugs include effects or
1: yeah
0: uh, so I, I wouldn't so it, it is a good thing I think that you didn't have trouble from a day but I wouldn't I wouldn't be too foolhardy with yeah. it.
1: Yeah, no. Like I said, I'm willing to go slowly. I just have to figure out which strategy and method to, to use. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm glad I'm talking to you now because the plans worked great so far. And I figured it might be at that very end yeah. point that is going yes. to be challenging. Yes. Um, so I'm cautiously optimistic about getting off the medicine myself and really value and appreciate this conversation. I do know um, somebody who was on extended release, 75 milligrams, and said if they're an hour off in taking their dose, yes. they get the brain zaps.
0: Yes. That's the more common story I would say. Wow. Effexor is a very uh, dependence-forming drug. It's got a very short half-life. It affects a lot of different receptors. Uh, I know a professor of uh, psychiatric drugs who was on Effexor, and if he took it two hours late, he was in trouble. Uh, so, uh I'm not surprised to hear about a friend of yours like that. Uh, He's probably in the bigger category of people. You might be someone who's not quite as sensitive to it.
1: Right. So uh, I would love to hear about Outro uh, and what you're doing. This is an organization that you have founded that helps people wean and taper off of antipsychotics and antidepressants. Is that right?
0: Just just antidepressants, Antidepressants. not, not antipsychotics. Okay. So, I mean, that's right. So. Out Outdoor Health, it's a digital clinic. It's running currently in Canada, in, in British Columbia, and in Ontario, and it'll open uh, in the second half of this year in America. Uh, and it really uh, came about to solve uh, the problem that you know, you're having, that I've had, and a lot of people are having, which is they, they, they've been on an antidepressant. It's been helpful to them maybe like in your case, but you've moved to a part of your life where you no longer uh, need it, or it's causing more health problems and benefits, or maybe like me, slightly worse case, it never was all that helpful, and it caused quite a lot of trouble, Uh, and they want to come off it for whatever reason. Some young women want to have a baby, older people want to reduce their risk of different health problems. There's a whole variety of reasons people want to stop, and unfortunately, Uh, in North America it's less true in England now uh, doctors don't know how to stop these drugs right Uh, you know in England as I said the 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 guidelines have been updated Uh, they've been changed more and more doctors are being educated how to stop them in North America uh, the response to this change has mostly been crickets uh, unfortunately They, they haven't changed things they haven't really paid attention It's been, I would say, a very defensive response. Uh, They sort of wheeled out, professors of psychiatry say, this is not a problem, Uh, it's a minor problem. I see it a little bit like a response to climate change, you know, that they, first of all, deny it, uh, uh, then they minimize it, then they delay it. So they said for years, there was no withdrawal effects. There was something called discontinuation effects, which is sort of like describing a car crash, as an abrupt discontinuation event involving a wall uh <laughs> right. you know i think there's a lot of euphemisms used uh uh then they said oh yes there is a few people it's not many it's a very minor thing and let's not overreact these drugs are very helpful let's not throw out the the baby with the bathwater. uh let's not be too hasty that's sort of where they are now in america in england they sort of moved through that into in actual fact the government is now uh put out new guidelines, it's looking to fund clinics to help people stop these drugs. So it's a very different stage to America.
1: Well, that's awesome. I I feel like even just in diminishing the stigma around mental health, England uh, seems way more forward than
0: the U.S. Yes, yes. I think that's patient voices are somehow louder there. There's more uh, sort of democratic backwards and forwards. I think drug companies are not quite as big in England, as they are in America, where right. they seem to loom very large yeah. everywhere.
1: So, when did Outro start in Canada? How long have you guys existed?
0: Right. So, so Outro opened uh, at the end of last year in November. It's been running just a few months, uh, and it's basically offering, you know, what is now becoming more standard treatment in England, but is but is not, you know, available in Canada or America. So, it's this. I've sort of described it in talking through your case, or the case of effectsor, It's about uh, you know one of the things that a lot of people have is they're very ambivalent about whether to continue or stop the drug. So a big part of things is getting the right information that most doctors don't give. You know, I sort of said they sugarcoat things, they rush through informed consent. Yeah. So we're we're spending a lot of time explaining what are the what are the actions of an antidepressant what are its benefits and studies what do people say what are the downsides of long-term use uh you know uh, there's a there's a myriad things you know there's sexual side effects i didn't talk about more than half of people have sexual side effects one of the reasons that middle-aged men want to stop their antidepressants is because they're having trouble below the belt right um we know that some of those problems can persist even after you stop the drugs reasons we don't quite understand we know, you know, I mentioned some of those risks. There's risks of obesity, there's heart problems. One, the number one reason though that people want to stop their drugs is because of emotional numbing, because they feel that they don't feel as they used to. They don't feel positive emotions, they don't have the same uh, excitement or, or interest in life that they used to have. Or even um,
1: experiencing sadness, I've heard from some. Like they yeah.
0: can't experience sadness. E- exactly, exactly. And I, oh, yeah. this is, This is one question i'd like to jump back to you you asked earlier you asked me how do antidepressants work you said you sort of included the placebo effect but i i think this is worth saying for a minute uh you know if antidepressants are not fixing serotonin levels then what are they doing there's a whole lot of complicated neurobiological explanations which i spent my phd looking at inflammation new 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 neurons being grown uh growth factors a whole lot of different explanations, most of which comes from uh, animal work or like my PhD from cells in a dish, never been shown in humans. Yeah. But one thing, one thing is shown in humans again and again in study after study, and that is if you ask people who are on antidepressants, how do you feel? They say they feel numbed, and they mean that my positive and my negative emotions are reduced in intensity not as strong as before. Uh, there was a big study released in England where they showed this in healthy volunteers because sometimes people say, oh, well, it's, the, it's the depression. Depression causes these emotional blunting things. And it can, but they did this study in healthy volunteers, no depression involved. And people given the people were given placebo or antidepressant and those given antidepressants said that they, 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 they are on objective tests done in a very a uh, high tech cognitive laboratory found that they had reduced uh, emotional responses to learning and to stimuli. In other words, they, they had their emotions numbed. Right. Now now that might be helpful if you're in if you're completely panicked, if you're in the depths of despair, having the, the dial turned down from a ten to a three might be a big relief. But in the long term, it might be a different situation. You know, it might affect your your capacity to be intimate with a partner. It might affect your capacity to feel, to enjoy life, uh, to know what you want. And that's what people come to us and say, that they, they don't quite feel things as they used to they'd like to again. Um, as an aside, I think that's that should be a part of informed consent because people are being told today this antidepressant is prescribed to fix a chemical problem that's causing your unhappiness which is a very different explanation to being told this is a drug that may numb your emotions right you know you might i'm not you might say yes to it you know a lot of people i think would say yes to it but you might take it for a shorter period of time and you might try other things first or try other things along with it whereas being told it fixes a chemical problem I mean, you know, that's a very different level of explanation. That makes it sound like you really should take it and maybe forever.
1: Well, in which you have certainly disproven. I mean, it's uh, a false statement.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not just us. You know, in fact, we were accused of of saying very boring things that were already known, and that's probably a bit <laughs> true. You know, we were not the first to say it; we we're just we we're just the most recent. Right. Right. It's been known for a long time. That's not what causes depression. Yeah. Yeah. So. 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 so sorry. Back to. Uh, so in outro, a big part of it is, is, is information and education uh, to help people make the decision. Is it right for them to, to stop? It may not be right for everybody. It may not be the right moment in, in their lives, but it's worth having you know, an in-depth discussion about what can happen, uh, what the pros and cons are.
1: And I want to just stop you for a second to, to say one thing that I love that I had learned about outro is that there is this personal piece. Right, it's not just yes. a platform and it's going to help you tell you how to wean and what to wean, but there's personal
0: yes, there are yes. people
1: there who are engaging in conversations and supporting along the way, which I think yes. is amazing and so important.
0: Yes, exactly. Sorry, it's sorry, of course, it's not just a website, it's a clinic, it just happens to be run digitally. I and mean, we have, I mean, we're, we're very lucky to have uh, a lovely uh, a group of nurse practitioners, psychotherapists psychiatrists uh, sorry the 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 main couple of nurse practitioners working there are lovely they're very well informed about the process Uh, some of them have had experience of coming off antidepressants so it's not it's a very you know this is this is the one thing that we do you know I don't I'm not knocking GPs or primary care practitioners they're dealing with the full spectrum of of, of illnesses Uh, it is very hard to know what to do with every specific condition you know we are expert in one thing and that is how to safely stop antidepressants to minimise withdrawal symptoms and relapse and keep people well after they stop, that's all we do uh, and, and, and you know we do it exactly, it's a, it's a personal, everybody uh, has a personal plan. We get to know what your experiences are in, in the past with stopping and we work out a plan that fits in with your life because some people are extremely busy, uh, some people uh, want to focus on, on stopping. And we use uh, a lot of proactive monitoring so we'll monitor people's withdrawal symptoms uh, using a a digital interface you know in a way that doctors just don't have time to do in 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 the course of general practice right we'll use that to work out what rate you can go you know I gave you some very general advice about effects or yeah if you're in the clinic you would you would know how fast or slow you could go because we'd monitor things day by day week by week to know how things are going right Alongside that, you know there's a whole bunch of things you can do to make life easier, to make to, to manage depression and to get through the process. And we have this uh, wonderful uh, therapist who has put together a, a variety of different non-pharmacological ways of coping, everything from uh, exercise, diet, mindfulness. There's a whole suite of of tools there to help support people uh, that that's good during withdrawal. And, and and even better when you've off the drug to, to help manage the problems that put you on the drug in the first yeah, place.
1: Yeah, right. That sounds so awesome. Are people connected with one kind of point person to talk through their side effects or or I'm sorry, their yes. withdrawal? Yes. Symptoms yes. That's right. Yes. So they can build a relationship with that one person. It's not like call outro tomorrow and you might get a different therapist no, or a different. No.
0: No. 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 We're not. I sort of. It's not, it doesn't happen in England, but I've heard about these giant uh, machines of corporations that are now offering uh, medication and therapy where it's sort of like a McDonald's uh, right. version. You know, we're a little, we're the opposite. We're a bit like a, a little family there. There's just a, it's, at, at the moment, it's small. It's just a few of us. Uh, it's very close knit there. You only see one person. You'll see the same nurse practitioner from start to end. That's awesome. You know, you won't be thrown around. Uh you're in contact by, you know, message, uh, you know, within business hours. We, we got, we, they have to have weekends too. You know, you, you get replies. So if you get in trouble, you know, you're just a message away. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of what happens to people is their doctor gives them, like to you, uh, here are the three steps, do it every two weeks. You know, I'll see you in six weeks. In that time, you get into huge trouble. You don't know what to do people either end up throwing away their drugs cause they're so afraid of them or going back on the full dose. So we're, we're a bit, you know, we're walking with you through the process. We're not leaving you to work it out yourself in case you don't have a brother who's a doctor, you know, like <laughs> right, you. So, right. right. Wow. Uh, it just sounds
1: amazing. And, and you've had, uh, I know it just started not too long ago, but so far it's been a good solid startup for you.
0: It, it has, it has, it's been, it's been a lot of interest in it. Uh, you know uh we've ha- we actually had uh, a lot of interest from america i think i think it, it probably represents uh how much private health care and and how uh how little doctors know uh about how to stop antidepressants safely in america but we started in, we started in canada we've had we've had uptake there and uh you know we've got a long waiting list in america so we're, we're keen to get started in america uh you know we, we I mean, personally, I hope that uh, people will start to learn from outro, you know, that we will have competition, that we will, you know, have, that we'll be able to teach uh, other doctors how to stop antidepressants because, you know, in America, there's 43 million people on antidepressants. Uh, So it's growing every year. It's one in four, you know, today, one in four people in America are on antidepressants. Uh, You know, a lot of those people are going to have trouble if they're still on them for decades. You know, I've talked about heart disease, early mortality, strokes, yeah. sexual problems. The longer you're on a medication, the harder it is to stop for antidepressants. yeah. So there's a very, you know, there's a very large number of people there to be served. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and we, we just want to start helping people and also demonstrate it for other, other doctors. You know, yeah. that's a big part of the mission is really to change the conversation about antidepressants, to have informed consent. If people are going to use these drugs, there should be a safe off-ramp for them. You know, there's lots of on-ramps, lots of places to get the medication, yeah, yeah. but very few places to go on how to stop them safely. Ah,
1: yeah. wow, that's awesome. When is the rollout in the U.S.?
0: Uh, it's sort of being it's sort of in planning stages. Uh, the the my my partners are the are the business guys. I'm the. I'm the nerdy science guy. <laughs> okay. I think it's in the next few, I think it's in the second half of this year.
1: Okay, fantastic. That's, um, I'm excited for Outro. I'm excited for all the people that you're going to be helping.
0: Yeah. So you can check out the website, is on, I think it's outro.health or outro.com. There's a waiting list if you want to express interest. Uh, there's a lot of information there. You know, we, we, as part of our mission to inform people, there's just a lot of free information about the medications and about coming off them. So you can, you can already learn quite a lot just by looking at the website.
1: Yeah, so outrohealth.com?
0: It's, it's, there's two websites. There's outro.com and outro.health, okay. one, one of those.
1: Okay, I'll make sure I get that in the show notes too. Any other uh, – don't you have your own website if people want to learn more about you?
0: Sure, sure. I've got uh, markhorowitz.org, uh, www.markhorowitz.org. It's got all my papers. Uh and a, and a bit of uh, spiel about me there. They want to find out more. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, at uh, at Mark Horro M A R K H O R O. If you want to see what some of my colleagues make of my work, positive and negative, uh, yeah.
1: Okay, that's awesome. And if people want to reach out directly to you, are they able to do that? And if so, how?
0: Uh, people can people can email me. Um, I'll give them my my university address, I'm, I can put it in the, in the show notes if you want. It's, it's m.horowitz at ucl.ac.uk.
1: Awesome. I will definitely include all of those in the show notes. And, uh, as we wrap up here, Dr. Horowitz, I'd love to ask you, it's a question I ask everybody on the show. Uh, if somebody's listening to this show and they are struggling, what would be your biggest piece of advice?
0: My biggest piece of advice would be to be extremely skeptical of uh people offering quick fixes. Uh you know, a lot of people get into strife. Uh I, I normally mention that if you follow people for 40 years, 86% of people will have an episode of clinical depression or clinical anxiety, not not feeling down or anxious, but meeting the criteria that doctors use for depression and anxiety. So almost nine out of 10 people. It's an extremely common occurrence. The natural history of these things is people find ways through them before the era of medication, the six month recovery for depression. And this is people who were depressed enough to be admitted to hospital was 85% at six months. So the natural history that is the, the, the unmedicated history is that people find ways of adapting to circumstances or changing circumstances uh, you know there's a huge natural recovery rate uh, there are lots of options I like to give the example in England you know we have government guidelines for depression it's it's uh, a whole set of uh, health economists and researchers sit there for years to put these together for severe depression there are ten treatments that have been declared effective or cost effect and cost effective equally and only two of them involve medication antidepressants wow. the other eight uh, so there are eight non medication treatments for depression the most effective treatment out of all of those ten uh, was problem solving therapy and I think that's very telling you know it is pro it's it goes back to what I said at the beginning it's problems that get people into trouble and it's solving those problems that can help them uh that can help them you know work it out the other treatments in that in that thing involve various different forms of therapy exercise mindfulness there are lots of things that were not tested uh diets art therapy being outside because there wasn't the sort of trials that these uh, very stringent research uh, institutes use so i i think my main message would be you know, don't get confused by all of the uh, scientism, the, the discussion of human emotions using fancy neuroscience and medications. A lot of that comes from industry. And, and stick to the, to the underlying, uh, you know, the sort of wisdom that would come from, as I've said, from your grandma, that we are mammals. We need meaning and purpose and camaraderie. And we get very unhappy when we're overwhelmed by demands and stresses, and we all find different ways of navigating through that. So I would, I would sort of, uh, you know, say to people to hold on to a humanistic understanding of why they're unhappy, and not to, not to be caught up in in the sort of wave of scientism. Scientism is, you know, the appearance of science, a lot of fancy discussions without real uh, hard evidence. That would be my message to people. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. Well, Dr. Horowitz, I want to thank you for all of the work you're doing and uh, for Outro. I'm looking forward to the launch of Outro here in the US. And uh, I also want to thank you for taking the time to be on The Depression Files. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Al. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for all the good work you do. your, Your podcasts are very helpful. Awesome.
1: Well, make sure you stay healthy.
0: Cheers. Same to you.
1: Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. This is one small way that would help me out greatly. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can call, text, or chat 988 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can visit suicide.org slash dash hotlines for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you would like to connect directly with me or have a topic to suggest, please reach out to me on Twitter at allevin18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.